There is a particular type of story that we grow to love when we are little children, and we carry that love with us throughout our whole lives. It's a particular theme, a particular trope that we learn to love as kids and love it our whole life. And that uh, particular theme is a story of grave injustice that is somehow radically upended. We call them fairy tales. You remember Cinderella, right? Cinderella, like all these cute movies for children. Her parents die. And uh, she is forced to live with the wicked stepmother, right? And the wicked stepsisters. And the stepsisters get the beautiful ball gowns and the dresses. Cinderella gets rags. The stepsisters get this beautiful access to the mansion. And they each get their own bedroom with all this beauty. Cinderella sleeps in the attic, right? I mean, the, the, the stepsisters get everything. And Cinderella gets treated like trash until, right? Until we learn... Oh, snap! She's the one the prince chooses, and it's got a fairy godmother in there, right? But say you're not into Cinderella. You're into Harry Potter. Okay, or not. (laughs) Come on, you know Harry? Parents die. Again, kid's story. And he goes to live with the Dursleys on Privet Drive, right? Dudley Dursley, his cousin, gets spoiled rotten. Dudley gets access to the whole house. Harry has to live in the cupboard. Dudley gets all the cakes and cookies. Harry just wants a crumb that falls from the table and never gets anything. Gets treated like trash. Until we discover Harry's not just any boy. He's the boy who lived, yo! thing is, we don't ever really outgrow that. It touches something deep within us to see this grave injustice. It makes us angry, but then to see that somehow upended. When, when something that is highly precious and treasured, but it gets treated like trash. And it happens in real life. I'll never forget a, a story told to me by a seminary professor who was invited to preach at a very old, very prestigious, very wealthy church in Manhattan. Uh, This church was very wealthy and not doing well. Maybe those are connected. I don't know. But they had all the the building and the prestige and the money. They didn't have a pastor. Things kind of, you know, small and dwindling. So they invite this guy to be an honored speaker, featured speaker. It's pouring down rain in Manhattan. So being a a good gentleman, he pulls up to the front of the church and lets his sweet wife out so that she doesn't have to walk very far in the rain. He goes around the corner to look for the parking garage. And when uh, she gets there, of course, you know how it is. Doesn't know anybody, has never been to this church before, uh, is the wife of the guest speaker, you know. And so she, she... you know, rain and it needs to get cleaned up. And so she asked, kind of tentatively looking around, asked someone, you know, could you point me to the restroom? And she's told, sorry, ma'am, but this lobby and these restrooms are for the use of the congregation, not for the convenience of tourists off the street. Awkward, shocked. She just sort of timidly walks back outside in the rain. When her husband finally comes in, you know, sees, sees her out in the rain. What on earth are you doing? Come on in, honey. Come in, sweetie. What are you doing? And there, as the realization dawned on the people who had kicked out, I mean, the, you've invited this man to be your guest preacher, and the thing that is most precious to him in the world, you've just treated like garbage. You 
know the sermon that day was fire and brimstone, right? <laughs> Had to be. That story makes us angry, doesn't it? It makes us wonder, could, have I ever done that? Have I excluded people? It, it makes us wonder, maybe, have I ever been there? Have, have I? It's like at some point we've all been that lady in the rain. We've all been that person that's on the outside looking in. That, I believe, is why the Cinderella's and the Harry Potter's and all these children's stories have such an enduring legacy. It's because we've all known what it's felt like to be on the outside looking in. And we love stories where the ultimate outsider got to become the ultimate insider, that they got access into that group. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it the, the inner ring, you know, the, the, the clique or, or whatever. If I, could, if I could get in that, that they've got it all together. If I could get this amount of wealth, if I could get this social standing, if I could get this approval, I'm on the outside. I'm looking to get in. And as long as I'm left outside, I'm left outside of my shame. And I long to be in. Feeling of being left out. It's very real. It shows up in big ways, you might predict, but I think it shows up in unexpected ways, in little ways. Shame. I, I, I don't know why you know, years ago, I don't know why, I've never, in New York, I needed to get a new set of tires. So I go into the tire shop. I don't know anything about cars. And suddenly, when the guy who knows nothing about cars walks in, suddenly there's an audience of like eight employees standing around. <laughs> Let's hear what this moron has to say, right? Like, shouldn't you all be busy? So what do they ask? I need, I, I need tires. What do they ask me? What size tires you need? round <laughs> like what i don't know size tire like why would i oh the shame the looks believe this you believe this the implication was only thinly veiled a real man would know what kind of tires what size tires he had the implication you're not you're not a real man what what kind of man are you you don't know you know the shame you feel in that moment they're the insider they have tire knowledge okay I'm left outside. I told that story this week, and one lady was like, well, you know, it's printed on the side of the tire. I'm like, you're not helping my shame. <laughs> we can laugh at that, and I can tell that story, and it's funny. Why? Because I never put my identity in being a kind of guy who needs to know his tire size. But when it's not a laughing matter, it's when those identity issues get rocked, even at a young age. There are children who, to this day, some of you are in this room, there are children who, to this day, bear the emotional scars of never getting on the inside of your parents' approval. You'd bring home a 98, and they'd say, let's see if you can bring that up to 100. And, 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 and your life, in many ways, still bears the marks of that. You bear those wounds. That's real. There is an inside approval, and you're left on the outside. And then you go from childhood to adolescence, and you think, I won't deal with these issues of being left out. I'll get better at fitting in now, now that I'm in middle school. Okay. Middle schoolers, I know there's some of you in this room. You need to listen to your pastor. The reason you heard all the grown-ups laugh is we're about to let you in on a truth, and you need to hear me. You are not alone. You are not the only person who feels this. Listen to me, middle schoolers. Right now, the person you think has it all put together, the best-looking middle schooler, the, the funniest, the, 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 the wittiest, the, the most charming, the most athletic, the smartest, that kid, got him pictured? He or she is right now scared to death that no one likes them. Because that's what it's like to be in middle school. And then high school and college, what's the first thing you want to know? Where's my group? Where am I going to fit in? Who's, where, where's my uh, niche? 
And as adults, we get a unique take on this. I don't think this is germane to Coleman. I think a lot of small towns, there can be a sense in which if you didn't grow up here, it's easy to feel you're on the outside of this sort of mysterious inside. And I don't think people on the inside are necessarily being mean about it. I think they just don't think about it. There's this social sort of network built up, and you're left on the outside. Many people have told me when they moved here, if they didn't grow up here or marry somebody who grew up here, that they feel on the outside somehow. All of this, 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 this sense, now I think Freud would say it all comes down to none of us got the approval of our parents and so we transfer that need to get approval to all these other things and that explains, that transference explains why you're so driven at your career, why you're so neurotic about your kids, why everything on social media has to be perfect, why, why you're so driven to get that emergency fund just the way it needs to be. I think Freud is wrong that it's always about our parents. I think he's right though about transference. And I think that there's one more sort of wicked, cruel irony to all this. Here's the worst part. Here's the secret no one talks about. Even if and when you finally do break through, I just can't seem to get on the inside of my job. Everybody else can understand and relate. And I'm, I'm an outsider looking in. It seems like I can't get inside on this family situation. Or I'm always left out. Here's the cruel irony. Once you finally do break through to that inner ring, you know what you discover? There's an inner ring within the inner ring. And you're still not there. And now you're still on the outside. And it still falls flat, even when you got the thing you were promised. It's never enough. So where do we belong? Where do we fit in? Thankfully, we are not the first Christians to wrestle with these questions. And I want you to go all the way back to the Apostle Peter. First Peter. Will you turn there? First Peter chapter 2. In First Peter chapter 2, one of the original apprentices to Jesus the apostle Simon Peter. You remember last week we talked about disciples were apprentices. One of the original apprentices, Simon Peter, he uses this extended analogy to talk to his people. His people went from being a, a, a part of the, the Roman Empire or they perhaps Greeks or Jewish, whatever. Overnight they became exiles because of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. They were like people without a home. And Peter here teases out this metaphor in 1 Peter 2. As you're turning there, I want you to see 1 Peter 2 to basically say, look, Cinderella and Harry Potter and all these fairy tales, these were just mere shadows. These were hints. These were overtures of the ultimate treasure being treated like trash. You want to talk about the ultimate upending, the ultimate injustice. Let's talk about the ultimate treasure that was treated like trash. Jesus Christ, verse 4, as you come to him... The him there is Jesus. So you see, as you come to him, not you came to him once, as you come, day after day, as you're coming to Jesus, a living stone, watch this, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Thrown away by the world, honored by God. You gotta love this. Um, Peter now goes on this extended metaphor about rocks and stones. Um, Simon Peter loved analogies about rocks and stones. And it's because, um, so Simon's name was originally Simon, and when he started walking with Jesus, Jesus would do this thing sometimes, where when, you, when he walks with an apprentice, he'll give him a new nickname. And he gave Simon the nickname Petras, which means rock or stone. He gave him the nickname Rocky. And he said, Rocky, like, because like, Peter would do this thing where he'd be like, you know, you're the Lord, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, that kind of faith right there, that confession on that rock, I build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You see? And so he, so he loves these analogies about rocks and stones. 
and he unpacks it. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. And here he goes back, opens up his concordance, looks for rocks and stones, and draws out all these beautiful things. The psalmist said some of them. Jesus repeated some of them. And he repeats them. Peter actually said one of these in his sermon in Acts, which shows us that even Peter recycled sermons. It stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Zion's a nickname for Jerusalem, the holy city. A cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. In other words, he's precious to you. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's use our imagination a little bit and see if we can get our heads around this image. Colin Smith does a great job of illustrating this. I'll borrow his illustration. Imagine, if you will, a building site. And all these developers are there. They're putting up these new homes in this new development. Down the hill, the development's already been built. But up here, it's new. And and they got all these stones lying out open here. Of course, they're they're going through them. They're bringing each stone to the foreman. What about, yes, yes, we'll take that one. Yes, that'll go in that wall right there. Yep, that one's good. Yes, yes, that that, that one's going to go over there. Right, and so they're kind of sorting through and getting all their building materials laid out. And they bring this one oddly shaped stone. It doesn't match the shape. It doesn't match the texture. Uh, it just doesn't fit in. And so they, 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 they sort of lay it off to the side. But then as they keep working, they have to keep working around it. And finally, one gets so frustrated, he kicks this oddly shaped stone. And it rolls down the hill, down to where the, the, um, the, near the driveway of the new development down the hill. Enough with this. We keep stumbling over this thing. It's in our way. It doesn't fit. Well... A few minutes later, a little boy's riding his bicycle, you know, got the headphones in, and uh, uh, as, as he's coming up on that driveway, sure enough, front tire hits that stone that's now been kicked down the, down the hill, flips over the handlebars, I mean, face plant, the whole thing. Some of the builders see it, so they run down there, like, you okay? Yeah, yeah, dust the poor kid off and send him on his way. Guy looks at that stone, are you kidding me? stupid rock never again he picks it up and he throws it in the dumpster enough back to work a week later the stonemason shows up pay this guy big bucks comes down from the big city because they're building a gorgeous majestic archway mason shows up to complete this arch, which lacks, of course, the capstone, and asks, where's my stone? What stone? What stone? The stone. That's what stone. The stone that is of infinite cost. The the stone that that these owners paid a lot of money and are paying me a lot of money to install. The stone, there's not another one like it in the world. The stone that is perfectly fit for this magnificent arch. The stone upon which the whole thing fits and depends. The stone which I had specially ordered and sent to this building site last week. Now where's my stone? Uh oh. To which they all look down sheepishly, finally tell him, 
uh, Frank here kicked it down the hill. What? And Joe threw it in the dumpster. They watched the mason storm down the hill to the dumpster, roll up his sleeve. The man is digging through the trash, coffee grounds and banana leaves and, and all the filth, right? And gets and sure enough finds the stone unbroken. And there, out of the dumpster, holds this stone up high. It's been treated like trash, but the mason realizes it's precious. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. God sent Messiah. He sent the most precious thing he had. And the, the builders, ethnic Israel, unbelieving Israel, unbelieving Israel, because many believed and are saved. Unbelieving Israel were the builders God wanted to use to build this temple. Unbelieving Israel treated as trash the, 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 the stone God sent. They threw Jesus in the dumpster, so to speak. They rejected him when he was meant to be the chief cornerstone. He, in fact, he was offensive. He was foolishness and a stumbling stone. You know, the world still wants to throw Jesus in the dumpster. But you, you who have received him, to you, he's precious. And Peter says, all these beautiful analogies that God wooed Israel, all these majestic terms that he ascribed to Israel, he now ascribes to Jesus. So, so, so you don't have to go to Jerusalem to have access to God, you just go to Jesus to have access to God. You don't have to somehow become an ethnic Israelite to be part of his holy nation. You, you come to Jesus and you're grafted into the family of God. You don't have to worship at some ornate temple in Jerusalem. He is the true temple. And because of him, for everyone who is in Christ, he says, it's, it's you. Peter is telling his beat up early church, look, I know you guys feel beat up. Ever since you came to faith in Jesus, it's like you don't belong. The Romans don't know what to think about you. The Greeks think you're idiots. They don't understand a, a, a Messiah back from the, that doesn't make any sense. The Jews think you're heretics. So overnight, I should say the unbelieving Jews think you're heretics. It's like overnight you became an exile and you feel sort of emotionally homeless. You're on the outside looking in. You're the lady standing in the rain of all this. And after a while, you start to feel unwanted, and you start to think, look, if God were going to have any family, it would have to be a chosen family, descendants of Abraham. And me, I'm a Gentile. What, what, what part do I have in this story? If God were going to have any special group of people with special access to him, it would have to be his priests. And I'm no, I'm no priest. I'm not called to be a priest. And if God were going to have any nation, it would have to be a holy nation. And I look around, I'm not part of a holy nation, I'm part of an unholy nation. And if God were going to have any special people, it seems like there'd have to be something special about them. And what's special about me? And then, to me, the next verse takes us to maybe the loftiest heights of the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9 is where God pulls his people close and whispers to them. I'm going to tell you what many years ago I told my chosen people Israel in Exodus 19 when I brought them out of Egypt. You need to know something. I know you feel beat up. I know you feel kicked around by the world. So listen carefully. I know what the world says about you. And I know all too well what your enemy says about you. And some of you, this is a word from God right here in this moment. 
because the world said something about you and the devil said something about you and God would say, I even know what you say about yourself. So now listen to what I have to say about who you are. But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who God says you are. There's a reason when I see you in the hallway sometimes I say, good morning, saints. Good morning, saints. Sometimes that gets a laugh. Oh, he must not know me. Well, are you a blood-bought, born-again child of God? Yeah, I've been saved. Well, then why would you live into the darkness identity? Let's live into your light identity. Every sinner's got a past, but every saint's got a future. And it ain't up to me to determine who you are. It's up to him. And if he says that's who you are, that's who you are. You're a chosen race. That's incredible. That, the, the, some of your translations say chosen generation. That's misleading because it sounds like generation. That comes from generation as in generated, as in genus, as in species. You're a new breed. We've got born once people, born into all sorts of ethnicities. But there's a chosen race of the born again people. And that means, and this is incredible to me, that means I am forever connected. I am racially, I am forever more connected to a Bangladeshi 13-year-old in Dhaka right now that's saved than I am to a fellow in Hartzell who doesn't believe, who looks just like me. That's my family. That's why it's not Jew versus Gentile or black versus white or Asian versus African or Middle Eastern or anything else. I've been adopted into the family of God. A chosen, a whole new humanity, a whole new species, a whole new race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. A treasure, this people in my own possession. There's jewels that the king and the queen put out in the museum for everybody to see. Then there's the private stash, the special collection. God looks at Israel, and now Peter reappropriates this to the church and says, you're my special collection. I treasure you. I should keep saying, I keep saying I treasure you. I should be more clear. What he actually says here is, I treasure y'all. But y'all are a chosen race. English uh, has this thing where uh, Southern English gets it right, but, you know, uh, proper English doesn't have second person plural. But that is, but y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It's all y'all. You, plural, are at the very heart and center of God's activity in the world. Listen to me carefully. You will never be left standing. What he's saying is, if you are in Christ, if you are my child, if I've saved you, if you're saved, you will never be left standing outside of my house in the rain because you are my house. The ultimate insider, you're mine. You belong to me. Now, we could spend multiple sermons on each of these. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. We could do that. And thankfully, we have a series where we can do that. I want to home in in our remaining time today just on this one, though. I want to just do priesthood. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Let that sink in for a second. Every, I'm calling the sermon, every member a priest. <laughs> Have you considered your calling to the priesthood? Like how's, I can just imagine the dinner conversations. So how'd it go at First Baptist today? What did they talk about? Well, Mom, I'm considering my calling to the priesthood. Huh? <laughs> yep. Didn't you just become a disciple last week? It's an apprentice, Mom. And yes, yes, I did. 
And you already want to be a priest? Listen, I'm not, this is in 1 Peter, okay? Y'all, yes, I want you to consider your royal priesthood. Priests have unique privileges and unique purposes. I can find at least three unique privileges and two unique purposes. Three privileges, two purposes. Everybody relax, I'll do them quick. <laughs> three privileges, two purposes. Right here, royal priesthood. Let's look at verses 5 and verses 9 where we see the, the phrase priesthood. You yourselves, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, to be a, here he calls us, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Uh, how cool is that? Side note. Uh, royalty came through the Israelite line of Judah. Priests could only come from the line of Levi. Uh, so how in the world do you get a royal priest? Judah, Levi. Uh, ponder that. Uh, that's something that didn't even, the Old Testament priests didn't even get royal priesthood. The church does. Okay, so here we go. Unique privileges, unique purposes. Uh, if you're a note taker, jot these down. First big heading, let's talk about the privileges. And there's at least three. Uh, the privilege number one, priesthood comes with unique privileges. Privilege number one, called. You have the privilege of being called. Notice 1 Peter 2.9, him who called you out of darkness. I think we have a lot of confusion about uh, the call, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about this. But say, Well, he called him to be a missionary. This, he called her into full-time Christian service. This pastor's been called, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in another sermon. But have you considered the calling on your life? Levi, so check it out, in the Old Testament, when we look at the priesthood, there were three classes of priests. There was the high priest that was instituted with Aaron after Exodus 28. There is the priest, high priest, priest, and then the Levites. You had to be from the tribe of Levi in order to be eligible to be a priest. But then there's a further subset. To actually be a priest, it wasn't enough to be a Levite. You had to be a specific kind of Levite. You had to be descended from Aaron. So, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites got to be priests. You with me? If you look back at the tribe of Levi, here's the only point I wanted to make. Think about the goodness and the grace of God when he chose his priesthood. It wasn't like Aaron or the Levites were like, hmm, God will probably make us his priestly tribe because we're so awesome. We're going to impress God with our awesomeness and take whatever priest test he has for us and then he'll ordain us as priests. No, if anything, in Genesis, we see Levi is like violent and angry. Uh, so he didn't impress God. God chose him out of his grace. If you are a part of the family of God, aren't you glad? You didn't have to take some test. You, you, you didn't impress God, and that's why he chose you. He chose you because he loves you. It, it's his love. It's his grace to be called. The privilege of being called. Second privilege, access. Think about it, access. Here we have a, I think we have a real problem. <sighs> Ancient priests got access to God in ways a, a lot of people didn't. Here's my problem. In 2021, I think, I could be wrong, I think most people assume they can waltz in and out on God whenever they want. Like I think our problem is people have too much, that's not the, uh, they have too little respect for the awesomeness and otherness of God. So they just assume they always have access to God. Yeah, why wouldn't I? I met one kid that's like, 
Yeah, my plan, I was down in Texas preaching somewhere. He goes, well, I heard what you said tonight, preacher, but I'm not, I'm not going to get saved. Why? He goes, my plan is I'm going to live however I want, and then right before I die, I'm going to get saved. God has to forgive. Like that level of presumption, it, we hear it out of a teenager, and it sounds terrible, but many people live with that level of presumption. I can just, the Old Testament wouldn't have any, would not know what to do with that. The Old Testament would say, you talk about access, come with me to the temple. Hmm? First, we can all come, but then... Under penalty of death, we will leave you Gentiles here. And now, only Jews can go into this next courtyard. And then, once you're in the court of women, guess where you can... If we're going to go to the next courtyard, sorry ladies. Now, only Jewish men can go in here. And then, if we're going to go into the next courtyard, sorry all Jewish men, just the Levites. And then, sorry regular old Levites, just the priests, and then we come to the Holy of Holies. Sorry, literally everyone else except the high priest. You remain far off. High priest gets access, and then only one day a year. It is shocking to, uh, you got to understand, the original hearers, for God to seem so close, but yet be so far off to be told, you have access. Because Jesus Christ is our high priest, you now have access to God, to the God of the universe. This is when people hear priesthood of all believers. I don't know if you ever heard that doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. If you ever heard that, wonder what it means. This is in part what it means. J.V. Fesco, his definition, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers states all believers in Christ share in his priestly status. Therefore, there's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. You don't need a special class of people to go through to get the knowledge, the forgiveness, the love, the relationship with Christ. All believers have the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply teachings of Scripture. Think of it this way. So apparently they're going to play a football game tonight. I don't know if, I don't know if you've heard. They talk about it a little bit. Um, and uh, if you uh, notice tonight during the Super Bowl, if you'll notice from fans to um, spectators to the press, all these coaches... If you look carefully, they've got this thing hanging around their neck on a lanyard. It's a, it's, a, it's a pass. And it will be stamped, and everybody does access differently, but it will be stamped often with a letter. It's like, oh, you got a letter A, and oh, this guy, he, he's only G. And those letters are to grant you only certain levels of restricted access. So an A pass can go somewhere that a G pass can't go. You understand? So, 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 and on top of that, because of COVID, only a certain number of fans even get a ticket to even get in the game. So you may have gotten a ticket, but you don't have a, access to this luxury zone. You've, you've got a ticket, but you can't go here. Then there's some people, they could go all the way on the field, and it's all about that pass. Who's got restricted access? Who's got this access? There is, however, a group of people, they don't need a pass. You know who does not need an all-access pass tonight? Tom Brady. Okay, Patrick Mahomes does not, um, it says here I'm, I'm level A. Nobody is coming up to Pat Mahomes tonight or Tom Brady and be like, let me see your field pass. Show me your access. Are you crazy? They're the, whole re they're the players on the field. They can go anywhere on the field. The defense will let them. Sometimes even when the defense doesn't want them to go there, it's hard to stop. He's like tech mobile, that guy. At any rate, do you understand? You've been given this incredible privilege. Watch this. Priesthood of all believers means there is a big difference. The reason all these people have this pass is because they're there as spectators. 
The reason these people don't need the all-access pass is they're there as players on the field. You are God's priesthood. You are the center of his activity on the earth. If God is going to bless this earth, who do you think he's going to do it through? He's going to do it through his church. If he's going to work, where's the action going to happen? If he's going to fight spiritual battles and push back the darkness, it's you. You're the player on the field. You don't have 50-yard line seats. Some of you can have access to this much church. Others of you, you need to be a spectator for this much of the activity of God. Church is not a spectator sport. You sit back and you have some access. Ooh, you can get on this. And, and you can be here. What do you, no, you're, you're not on a 50-yard line seat. You're on the 50-yard line. You're not in a luxury box. You're in a three-point stance ready to do battle against the enemy. You see? That's all-access pass. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. That's who y'all are. And just like football, priesthood is a team sport. It's not priesthood of every, priesthood of every individual believer. I am my own priest. I can interpret scripture myself. I have some ideas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Get in the community here. Let's see what the community thinks about your ideas. Okay. It's not meant to justify every crazy opinion. Y'all, though, are the priesthood. You're the center of activity. That leads to the next privilege. Holy. Set apart. Now, pastor, you, you, you might have had me at called. And I see what you're saying about access. But holy? Me? Well, holy just means set apart. When you say, okay, we're going to spend lots of, we're going to spend more time on this idea of holy being set apart. So I won't belabor the point today. Let me just say this. In ancient Israel, the priest, it was perfectly okay for the priest to look different than their surrounding culture. And they were okay with that. They got allotted their land different. They got their income different. They dressed different from special robes and garments and sashes. They had different, they were just okay being different. Ever hear me? A royal priesthood, a holy priesthood set apart is a group of people who at some point just acknowledge it's okay for us to look radically different than our culture. Why? Because you're holy, priesthood. Look at you. You're holy. You're set apart. What does that mean? Does that mean I stick my nose up and, you know, look holier than thou? No, man, a real born-again saint knows nothing of that pride and pretension. No, holiness is like this. Did any of you grow up in a home where you had a set of dishes, and they were nice, and you did not use those dishes. You had a room in your house that had a nice sofa. I'm talking about high-quality sofa, and you did not sit on that sofa. And then you would go to the bathroom, and you would wash your hands. And just when you're ready to dry your hands, the most plush towel in your whole house that is embroidered and embossed with actual gold. So help me, you did not use that towel, right? So you're looking around as a kid, and it's a little hard to understand. I'm sorry, let me see if I got this straight. The nicest couch, the best dishes, and these glorious hand towels, and we can't use them? That's right. Why? They are holy. They are set apart. And here's why. Those are for company. And I'm sitting here as a kid going, I'm sorry, I didn't get the memo. Is the Queen of England coming to Murray, Kentucky? Like, did I miss that? And if she gets here, mm, they tried to seat me on a couch someone else had sat upon. And you should see their towels. Like, I'm sure she'll have some chill. It's Murray. Like, I, I the Queen of England never came to Murray, Kentucky. So here I am, having set apart all this holy stuff and no activity. Nobody ever got to use it. The church gets it twisted when you think you've been set apart to be in a museum. 
case, somebody bigger than the Queen of England's coming to this earth. And God is breaking through. And God is invading your workplace. God is invading Redstone Arsenal. God is invading Rahal. God is invading West Elementary and East Elementary. God, God is invading our county. He's invading your home. He's invading. And who do you think is the center of that, uh, of that activity? What is the dish upon which God is serving the meal of feeding the people? It's you. How is God going to clean things up? What's the hand towel, if you will? It's you, and it's set apart for his use. That's what it means to be holy. You're set apart for the king. You're a royal priesthood. That's who you are. You can write it on the back of your wallet, put it in your billfold, or stamp it on the tablet of your heart, but God says it. That's who you are. I'm trying to help us apply this idea of royal priesthood, so let's close with these. Those are the three privileges. What about two purposes? I'll make them quick. In verse 5, one of the purposes of being a priest, priests were supposed to do two things. They were supposed to offer sacrifices and proclaim God. Offer sacrifices, proclaim, preach, declare, declare his glory, declare his excellencies. Let's start with offer sacrifices. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I went through the New Testament and tried to find all the instances when Christians were offering sacrifices. And it's pretty cool. There's a few. Uh, but the first one that stands out, uh, the, 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 look, in ancient Israel, the priests offered bloody animal sacrifices. Since Jesus Christ came as our once-for-all sacrifice for sin, no longer are the bloody animal sacrifices to be offered. What then are your offerings? First one that comes to mind is Romans 12.1. It's you. You are the offering, holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12.1 says this, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. That's exactly like 1 Peter 1.5. They're, they're saying it's almost like Peter and Paul knew each other. Peter and Paul knew each other. There it is. Offer you. What does that mean? It means you wake up tomorrow morning. You wake up today. God, I belong to you. I'm yours. I belong to you. So, so live through me today. Make me a blessing to other people. I am yours. I, I, everything I have, it's yours. See? I belong to God. Now, he says living sacrifices. That's the problem. You have to do this every day. As you come to him. See that? As you come to him. Uh, back in verse 4. So, so. It's not like you do this once. No, no, no. Every day, a surrendering, a laying down your life on the altar to be used of God. Why? Well, that's the problem with living sacrifices. The problem with the living sacrifices is sometimes it gets up and walks off the altar. So we come every day and present ourselves living sacrifice. But that's not all. Uh, uh, here's a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says, offer the sacrifice of praise. Did you know praise is an offering to God? Praise is a sacrifice. Offered up by a holy priesthood right here today. That's incredible to me. How is praise a sacrifice? It's a sacrifice when you don't feel like praising him, but you praise him anyway. It is tricky. Because if you didn't know any better, you would think that our musicians up here are worshiping. We're sort of consuming what's happening. And God is up there sort of directing everything. You'd be wrong. The musicians up here are directing God's people 
who are the priesthood. It's you. Their job is to get you singing and praising. And that makes the audience, not you. Who's the audience? Audience of one. Of three in one. It's God. God is the audience. And that means today, if, if my math is right, based on what, how many we had at the 8 a.m. and how many we have here at 9.30, and you add up all the YouTube views and the Facebook views and the online views, and you put them all together, that means a royal priesthood right here, just at Coleman First Baptist. Imagine what's going on in the whole county. But that means there's been a priesthood today. By the time our worship services are over, our holy God will have received the sacrificial offering of over a thousand priests gone up to God in praise. Is that not incredible? That's who you are. And it's not just praise, it's good works. Hebrews 13 says, look, your good works, your, your sharing, your willingness to share. Philippians 4.18, your offering, your giving is, is a fragrant offering to the Lord. So it talks about sacrificial giving, sharing, good deeds. My favorite, uh, the favorite sacrifice of all is mentioned in, in Romans 15. It's um, the offering of uh, converts, particularly Gentile converts. Let me explain. Uh, do you remember, uh, I, did, I did a series on Isaiah. <clears throat> in Isaiah, in the very last chapter, in Isaiah 66, the prophet has this incredible vision where he says, there is coming a day, y'all. There is coming a day when ethnic Israel, okay, my, my chosen people, that, that when, 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 when the members of ethnic Israel that put their faith and trust in me, so fulfilled Jews, completed Jews, Messianic Jews, if you'll allow me to use that term. So these people who are Israelite, they're going to declare my glory to the nations. That means Gentiles, okay? And then he says in Isaiah 66, and then, so that on my holy mountain, there will be an offering of Gentiles. The Gentiles are called an offering, Right? So that converts are offered to the Lord. And then, fast forward to Romans chapter 15, verse 16. Here's the Apostle Paul who says, Pray for me that I can reach all these Gentiles so that my offering may be acceptable to the Lord. Which means, here you have in the Apostle Paul an ethnic Israelite fulfilling exactly what Isaiah 66 would happen. Paul's doing it. Here an ethnic Israelite is reaching out to the Gentiles, declaring his glory among all the nations, and offering these converts as an offering. Isaiah 66 prophesied it. Paul fulfilled it. You get to see it right there. An offering of the Gentiles. So when you are an apprentice to Jesus and you invite somebody else to be an apprentice of Jesus, there in a way you're offering. Somebody led you to the Lord, you're an offering unto God. Pleasing, holy, acceptable. The other purpose is proclaim. We know that priests were supposed to proclaim because they get in trouble in Micah 2 for not proclaiming. <laughs> that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I know at some point I'm going to lose some of you. You're going to say, look, you had me at called. I understand access, but holy, you lost me there. And then sacrifices, I guess, but now, I'm sorry, you want me to proclaim? You want me to preach? Well, it says proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Let me just ask you, has God been good to you? You remember what it was like to be in darkness? You remember what you felt like when he called you to light? He did that when you got saved, but he's done it in some ways since, hadn't he? Because you, be, you can be a born-again, blood-bought follower of Jesus and still sometimes lose your way in the dark, and he brought you out. Hasn't he done that for you? He's done it for me. If he's done it, if he's done that for you, 
Tell somebody about how good he is. That's all that verse means. Proclaim his excellencies. And that is a broad term, which means you got however you want to do it this week. You can talk about how good he is in this area or that area. You can talk about what he did back then. You can talk about what he did five minutes ago. Just proclaim his excellencies. He's been good to you. He called you out of darkness into light. And thus fulfill your great purpose. One of them as a royal priesthood. Brandon's going to come and help us as we have a time of response and invitation. As he comes, don't close your Bible just yet. I, uh, I can't leave out this. I don't, I don't know when we'll pass this way again through 1 Peter 2. <laughs> Probably next Sunday. But, <laughs> but just in case, uh, look, at, look at verse 10. If you, okay, uh, Peter's audience, many of them would have known this story. If you know your Old Testament, you're about to be greatly rewarded with the beauty of this verse. If you don't yet know your Old Testament, stick around, get in a Sunday school class, you know, that's how you learn. Um, you'll still be rewarded. But if you know the story, if you know what this comes from, he says once, out of darkness, in a marvelous light, tell somebody, he said once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This, these quotations are lifted out of an Old Testament book. It's an interesting book called Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, and a lot of times God used his prophets almost like, like street performers. <laughs> they would live out realities and truths that God wanted to get across. It's kind of their version of social media. Here's how to get, get the word out to everybody. So he picked Hosea, and he said, here's, here's what's happening. Israel and I, my people and me, we're like in a marriage, and I'm being faithful to my covenant in this marriage. I'm honoring my marriage vows, but Israel is running around on me and cheating on me and forsaking me with all these other gods. So here's what I want you to do to demonstrate what I'm going to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry this woman, Gomer. Gomer's a prostitute. I want you to marry her. Oh, Lord, this isn't going to go well. You're right. And sure enough, it doesn't. And Gomer cheats on Hosea and goes off and says, now, you're going to do with Gomer what I'm going to do with Israel. I want you to go and buy her back out of her slavery that she sold herself into. I want you to go and redeem her. Excuse me? I thought you'd say go and cut her loose, go and divorce her, go and be done with her. No, that's what you'd think. That's what you'd think. Go get her back. And she ran off again. Go get her back. If you have this relentless love of God, go get her back. Demonstrate it through the life of Hosea and Gomer. And then he does this. They have this daughter, and they name the daughter Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy because Israel had broken God's heart and he was showing him the seriousness of sin he was fed up with sin no mercy and then they have a son he says name the son lo ami which means not my people no mercy and not my people that's what sin does cuts us off from the mercy of God cuts us off and then astonishingly Hosea prophesies what God tells him and it's this there is coming a day. In fact, he keeps saying, on that day. On that day. He never tells us what day. On that day. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will take not my people, and I will make them my people. On that day. What day? On that day. Now you tell me, church. Well, how could God have it both ways? How could God 
have no mercy and judge sin, but also merciful to sinners. How could God abandon a people who would abandon him, but then also call his people? How can God have it both ways? How can he forgive sin, but also judge sin? We know. We know that on that day was Good Friday. The day the sinless, spotless Lamb of God stretched out his arms, and on the cross, he became for us lo ruhama, no mercy. There was no mercy for the Lamb of God on that cross. No mercy, none. The wrath of God was poured out on him so that we, his people, his holy priesthood, could receive mercy. And he was cut off. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He became lo ami, abandoned, so that you never would be. And now Peter pulls this beaten up group of people that are getting, it's just hard to constantly go against culture and constantly live when everybody's going this direction, you're going this direction. He pulls them close. He goes, declare his excellencies. He called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're a people. Once you'd received no mercy, now you've received mercy. So that you can remember you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light this week. Let's pray. God, grant to us, grant to us, we who are believers, grant to us a fresh excitement about who you've called us to be. And Lord, let our identity be found in you and nowhere else. And God, grant that if someone is still on the outside looking in, if they are not yet a believer, no mercy and not my people, let today be the day that they receive mercy and they become this people of God, they become part of the family of God. Oh, let no one leave here without being saved, without receiving this incredible invitation to become your apprentice, to be saved by you, instead of trusting in all the other things they've been trusting in. Grant us that, Lord, today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.